Uh, I'm Randy, and I'm the lead minister here at the church. We're delighted uh, to be uh, with you today. If this is your first Sunday here, welcome. I'm going to be in the fireside room, with, which is just out these doors and to the right, and I'd be delighted to spend some time with you, pray with you, hear your story, and um, uh, we've got a little gift and, and just some stuff from the church that we want to share with you. So anyway, that's, that's going to happen afterwards. Um, if you've been here for very long, you know uh, that uh, ministry to families is, and students and children are very important uh, here uh, with the maze that we had a couple of weeks ago. Uh, something else is very important is uh, missions and outreach. And so we realize that when we send out teams of people uh, internationally, each year, not everybody can go. But today, this afternoon, we've got an in-house missions project, and it's called uh, Operation Christmas Child. And you're going to see a video on it a little bit later on in our service. But I just want to give you a heads up. That's a great opportunity for your family to come together and to do something together as a family and to serve Christ together as a family and to meet needs with love as a family. And so uh, it's going to be happening from uh, 2 o'clock to 5 o'clock uh, this afternoon. And as I said, you'll see a video on that. But I just wanted to um, uh, let you all know that that's coming today and I hope that you can join me in that this afternoon. All right. My grandfather is a man named Louis Roscoe Phillips. And he was born in Windyville, Missouri in the year 1900. His family's farm and my grandmother's family's farm were adjacent. He was nine years older than her and he waited for her. And he got married uh, when he was 30, she was 21. But when he was 18, he was about to be inducted into the Army for World War I. In fact, he, he showed up getting ready to go to training camp. And they gave him a Bible. And I did his service. Uh, he died in 1989, at the age of 89, and I did his service with his Bible. And this is a little Bible that he was given when he was 18. Not very big. Tuck it into your, your shirt. And here's the next slide I want you to see. Louis Roscoe Phillips, Plaid, Missouri, that must have been a suburb of Windyville. <laughs> and Windyville was a gas station. <laughs> but notice the date. So he signed that 99 years ago today. That's why I'm showing you this. 99 years ago today, my grandfather with an eighth grade education signed that Bible as an 18-year-old getting ready to go to the Great War. 41 million casualties in that war. Um, it was an ugly war. Ugly. 
I was particularly ugly because the tactics had not caught up with the technology. So you have these soldiers that are like charging into machine gun. It was just messy. But in the middle of that mess, they gave him a Bible. Not that the mess would go away, but that he could be anchored in the mess. Anybody here in a mess today? Anybody here going through a storm? We usually have three types of folks here at Windsor Road. Uh, Folks who have been in a storm, folks who are in a storm, or folks who are about to be in a storm. One of those three. And when your storm comes, what's going to be your anchor? Is it going to be your word or is it going to be God's word? Well, that's really kind of what I want us to explore today. As we look to the life of a character in the Bible named Samson. And his life is told in the book of Judges. Judges chapter 14 is where we are today. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn there. You'll find Judges 14 on page 214 of your church Bibles. And while you're turning there, I'll just kind of catch you up to the theme of the book of Judges. The book of Judges covers that time in Israel's history. After they left Egypt and the wilderness and before the monarchy, kings Saul, David, Solomon, etc. It's what you would call the Wild West days of Israel. And the term judges does not refer to judicial judges like we know them here in America. Think leadership. Think deliverer. Think savior. That kind of leadership. And most of the leaders in the book of Judges, unfortunately, weren't very good leaders. Now, Deborah was a judge. She was wonderful. Gideon was a judge. He started well, finished poorly. Jephthah was a judge who made a rash vow and sacrificed his daughter. Who does that? Jephthah did that. Israel's most celebrated judge was a man by the name of Samson. He's the 12th judge. And after a series of bad judges, poor leadership, the reader comes to Samson's life thinking, surely this ship is going to turn. Surely the corner is going to be turned and things are going to get better. And, well, let's just see. Judges chapter 14. Let's see if there's a miracle or let's see if it's a mess. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. The Philistines were enemies of Israel. Timnah was one of their towns. 
Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came rushing toward him. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. After some days, he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. His father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there, for so the young men used to do. As soon as the people saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. And Samson said to them, let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, put your riddle to us that we may hear it. And he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat, out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days, they could not solve the riddle. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? And Samson's wife wept over him and said, you only hate me. You do not love me. You put a riddle to my people and you've not told me what it is. And he said to her, behold, I've not told my father or my mother. What should I tell you? And she wept before him the seven days that their feast lasted. And on the seventh day, he told her, because she pressed him hard. Then she told the riddle to her people. And the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, what is sweeter than honey? And what is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house. And Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man. This is God's word. Miracle or mess? (laughs) Sounds like a mess to me. Sounds like a hot mess to me. Now, we've come here driving through this stormy weather 
Maybe someone's thinking, this better be good, Pastor. <laughs> Give me something positive from this chapter. Well, here's the best I got. All right? Here's the best I got. And I, it's, it's all I've got. God can do amazing things through self-absorbed people. Now, I don't know about you, but that gives me hope. A lot of hope. God can do amazing things through self-absorbed people. He can take the antics of messy, self-centered, secretive, compromising people, and he can still use all that for his redemptive purposes. And that's really what we're going to see here as we look at these verses. As we look at these verses this morning, I want us to consider Samson's self-absorbed behavior, his selfishness. It's a lesson for us. And then I want us to see God's amazing ability to redeem all of that. It should give us hope. Samson's messy life serves as a warning to us. God's amazing grace serves to make us worship him for who he is and what he can do. So let's get to work and let's kind of talk about the sad side of this passage of Scripture. It deals with Samson's self-absorbed life. Now, his story began in Judges chapter 13, and when we get to Judges chapter 13, I mean, things have just really gotten so bad and gray and depressed. You, you know, we can only look up, and so we're thinking that with the birth announcement of Samson, that hope is on the horizon, and, and you know, his mother is barren, and she wants a child, and an angel appears to her. You who are without child shall conceive and have a son. Sounds like it's going to be an early Christmas, right? And, and so, you know, he's going to begin to save Israel from their enemies, and she gives birth to a boy, and this young man grew, and it says the Lord blessed him, and then it says that the Holy Spirit began to stir in him, and the reader looks and feels that something is about to change and God is stirring and is up to something and there's hope and, and as we turn the page to chapter 14, the reader anticipates some response by Samson to his parents' prayers and to the Lord's blessing and to the Spirit's stirring. What will Samson's first words be? Will he say with Isaiah the prophet, Here am I, Lord, send me. Will he say with the psalmist, Oh, I delight to do your will, O oh God. What will Samson's first words be in Judges chapter 14, verse 2? I saw me a woman. Get her for me. And all the angels in heaven cringed. Really. And Samson's parents were horrified. Horrified. They say to him, uh, they say to him, Sonny, 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 S-U-N-N-Y. That's what Samson's name means. Sonny, 
Uh, now, um, it, uh, it, <laughs> we were given the impression that the Lord called you to fight the Philistines, not marry into them. So let's find a godly woman who is uh, spiritually synchronized, and let's find someone who loves the Lord and loves his word and loves his people. Nope. Verse 3. Get her for me, for she is right in my own eyes. For she is right in my own eyes. And that takes us to one feature of Samson's self-absorbed life. That is, Samson, self-absorbed Samson, wants to see and evaluate life according to what is right in his own eyes. You see, the main question of the book of Judges is, who will lead Israel? And that's really the question that's going on in Samson's life. Who will lead Samson? And what we see is that the primary conflict that's going on in the book of Judges is not between Israel and the Canaanites. It's not between Israel and the Philistines. It's not between Samson and the Philistines. The main conflict in the book of Judges is between the eyes of Samson and the eyes of God. Samson does not see the world the way God sees the world. His worldview is different from God's worldview, and so there's a, there's a worldview warfare that's going on. And one of the saddest verses in all the Bible is Judges chapter 20, verse 25. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's Samson, self-absorbed Samson. And you know, it makes him antisocial. Because sin is antisocial. Sin causes me to love me more than anything else and to care for me more than anyone else. Sin causes me to be obsessed with what I want, when I want it, how I want it, why I want it, where I want it, and who's going to deliver it. Sin morphs us into these bottomless vats of entitlement. And demands. I, be, I, I become a vat of expectancy. So here's the challenge. To what extent do these verses characterize us? To what extent is my heart led by self-sovereignty? Have I been designed to live within the claustrophobic confines of my own puny little kingdom of one? Or has God designed me to live in his Montana sky, blue sky? And you know how the process works, don't you? Eyes, heart, will, mind. That's how it works. What the eyes see, the heart desires, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. You, you ask any salesperson, they will tell you, people buy with their hearts and justify with their minds. And that's what's going on here. Well, Samson and his parents make their way down to the vineyards of Timnah. Verse 5, vineyards, 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 vines, grapes, Wait, Samson, aren't you a Nazarite? Aren't you supposed to abstain from the vine? 
what in the world are you doing? And before Samson has the opportunity, before the reader has the opportunity to even think any further, the scripture says that suddenly, out of nowhere, an opened mouth, bared teeth, roaring, rushing, clawing lion ambushes Samson, rushes him. But there's another rush that happens. Verse 5 says that the Spirit of the Lord rushes Samson, who proceeds to mangle that lion with his bare hands. Now, the judge, Ehud, slayed with a sword. And Jael slayed with a hammer and a peg. Samson uses his bare hands. And he doesn't just kill the lion. He shreds it. He tore that lion apart like that lion would tear apart a little goat. What's that about? It's a preview. Samson discovers something about himself and his calling and his vocation and who God wants him to be. Samson sees that when the Holy Spirit comes upon his life, he becomes an unstoppable force in the hands of an invincible God. And the only description that we have of Samson is in Judges chapter 16, verse 13, where it describes his long hair braided into seven locks. So Samson, we need to just eliminate this idea that Samson's this Marvel, DC, comic book character type of figure. He was just an ordinary person until the Holy Spirit came upon him. And the Holy Spirit makes Samson a wild man. But this wild man, this self-absorbed wild man, is a wild man who, look, keeps secrets. Verse 6. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. And it says he goes down in verse 7, talks with the woman. Doesn't say he loves her. Just says she was right in his eyes. And he goes back to Timnah. And on the way back, he look, verse 8, he sees the carcass of this lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of this lion. There was honey. It says he scraped some out with his hands, eating as he went. He even gave some to his parents. But look, verse 9, but he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. <laughs> this self-absorbed wild man keeps secrets. Why didn't he tell them? Oh, you know why. <laughs> he didn't want to take flack from mom and dad. See, as a Nazarite, he was not to touch. He was not to touch a carcass. But here he's scraping the inside of the body. Why? Well, because there's honey there. Well, that makes it different. But now he's keeping secrets. Huh. If you're struggling with the temptation or addiction or just a bad habit, and you're in this cycle of trying and failing and feeling guilty and keeping secrets... You know what? Your secrets are only making the problem worse. And that is why you will hear us say at Celebrate Recovery every Friday night, hiding your hurt only intensifies your hurt. And you'll also hear us say you're only as sick as your secrets. 
And make no mistake, the evil one wants you to think that your flaws and your sins are so unique that you have to keep them a secret. And too often we hide because we want others to think that we've got it all under control. But the truth is this, whatever you can't talk about in your life is already out of control. Finances, marriage, parenting, thoughts, sexuality, secret habits, you name it. You know, when someone confides, I've never told this to anybody except now, that is an exciting moment for that person. And do you know why? Because that person is about to be liberated. See, the pressure valve is about to be released, and for the first time, that person is about to experience hope. So what is your secret? What are you pretending isn't a problem in your life? And what are you afraid of your public to know? By the way, here's what others will think. Oh, you too? I thought I was the only one. Let's pray for one another. Let's help each other. Let's talk to each other. See? But that's not what we see going on here, is it? Samson goes down to Timnah. And verse 10 says, he prepared a feast there <laughs> where there were vineyards and vines and grapes. You know what's happening. Verse 11 says, as soon as the people saw him, they brought 30 companions. One scholar calls them bodyguards as if, hey, we've heard about you. So Samson decides to have some fun. He says, fellas, I'll make you bet. I'll tell you a riddle, and if you can figure it out within the seven days of this feast, that's how long the feast was, I'll get each of you a brand new Easter suit. And if not, then you have to give me an Easter suit. You're on. And here's the riddle. Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And you, you and I, we, are, we already know the answer to that, right? We're privy to what's happened here. But it's unsolvable to them because there's no frame of reference. So after three days, day four, they put the squeeze on Samson's bride. You value your life. If you value your family, this sounds like the Corleone family from The Godfather, right? You get him to talk, and you get us the answer. And so now she has a decision to make, right? Is it going to be Samson? Or is it going to be my family? And unlike Samson, she chooses her family. So she's more committed to her family than Samson is to his. Huh. Verse 16 says that Samson's wife wept over him. You only hate me. You don't love me. You put a riddle to my people. You've not told me what it is. And note he doesn't try to correct her. He doesn't say, oh, no, sweetheart, I do love you. I do. You don't love me. Oh, I do. I know he doesn't say that. What's he say? I need to tell my parents. Why would I tell you? So he doesn't love her. He doesn't love her. It's all sight. But we know that, don't we? And verse 17 says, she pressed him hard. She pressed him hard. And this wild man who shreds lions became like putty. And he sings. He sings. And right here we learn that she's been keeping her own secrets, right? Because she's not told him how they've threatened her. So he tells her, and verse 17, she told the riddle to her people. 
who then cleverly respond to Samson with their own riddle. Well, Samson, what is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? And the look on his face when they said that told them that they were right. To which Samson responds with a graphic, derogatory, belittling riddle of his own. If you've not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. And he's furious. And he says, excuse me, let me go shopping for those suits. And he goes down to Ashkelon, deeper into Philistine territory, where again the Spirit of God overwhelms Samson, who assassinates 30 unsuspecting Philistines in order to pay his bet. He ends up abandoning his bride at the altar, and the chapter concludes that his best man marries her. What a mess. Verse 19 says, in hot anger, he went back to his father's house. In hot anger. In hot anger. But why is he so angry? Really, think about it. He's the one who went to Temnah, right? He's the one who saw the girl. He's the one who thought up the riddle. He's the one who made the bet. He's the one who made up the secret. He's the one who couldn't keep his own secret. So Samson, if you're going to get... You know, hot, messy, angry fit with somebody. Look in the mirror. The only fool you're going to see is the one looking back at you. You see what's going on here? What we have is a self-absorbed hothead who does what is right in his own eyes and therefore is blinded as God's potential leader. He's not fulfilling his responsibilities. He keeps secrets. He's done in by one. And Samson, who is the most recognized leader in the book of Judges, isn't leading anyone, is he? He's because he's not even able to lead himself. He's a one-man show. And he begins looking more and more Philistine. Uh, by traversing to Philistia, he blurs the line between Israel and Philistia. God's people aren't crying out because they just they don't resist anymore. They don't see there's a problem. Israel has become assimilated into Philistine culture. They've compromised. There's no more resistance. Their very nation is on the verge of extinction. The Philistines have technology and they have cities and they're seafaring people. And Israel's just going, let's just go along with them. Let's just go along. The Philistines are about to swallow up an unbothered people whose leader is unbothered. And he doesn't even get what he wants, right? What did he want in verse 2? He wanted her. Verse 20, did he get her? No. No. Someone once said, you will never find in sin what you go in sin to find. Church family, the most dangerous thing you can follow is a heart that is untethered from God's word. And we can become so assimilated into our culture that we just no longer resist it. But James 4, verse 4, pushes back at us. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. 
Friendship with the world is enmity with God. And listen, that doesn't mean don't have non-Christian friends. That does not mean that at all. James says friendship with the world. And when James uses that word world, he's talking about a system that is hostile to the wisdom and word of God. The world is a worldview which opposes the plans of the Lord. The world has a worldview that de-gods God. The world has a worldview that wants to put a gag in God's mouth so that we have the final say. And um, this showed up pretty clearly to me in Friday's News Gazette uh, in a section of the paper, section B1, called Clergy Corner. Um, it concerns a story about a pastor who grew up in our community who spoke at an ethics in reciprocity conference at the UN. His topic was discrimination and violence towards uh, the LGBTI community, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, intersex community. He told his own story about growing up in a church in Urbana, wondering why the messages to him seemed homophobic. He said, I, I sat through sermons that dehumanized and demoralized me. He's quoted in the article as saying, neither God nor Jesus said anything about homosexuality or being queer. He said, being born who you are isn't a sin. Loving who you love isn't a sin. And the article goes on to talk about his mission today as being about rescuing victims of, I quote, domestic theological terrorism. And then he says, regardless of bad theology, LGBTI people are fabulous creations of God, and God loves them. Section B1, Friday's News Gazette. <clears throat> When I was in church history class in grad school, my professor said to me and our class when he returned our grades, I want you to give it 48 hours before you respond, especially if you don't like the grade you got. It's now been 48 hours. So I want to respond to this. My first question in dealing with this article was, well, what do I agree with here? And I found myself agreeing with a couple of things. I thought I'd share them with you. First of all, I totally agree that LGBTI people are fabulous creations of God. That's what the person says. I affirm that. And why? Because people are fabulous creations of God. We've been made in the image of God. We're the pinnacle of creation. We need to affirm that. Um, God loves them. Yes, I affirm that because God loves us. I also affirm that there are churches and pastors who use biblical truth as a club to dehumanize people. And I... I feel sorry when that happens. I don't want to be a part of that. 
That said, I cannot affirm a worldview that asserts the sovereign self. I cannot affirm a worldview that says, well, I feel this way about myself, I think this way about myself, I prefer this way about myself, thus based on my preferences, my urges, my drives, my wants, my heart, this must be from God, and therefore, he made me this way, therefore, I will live this way. Friends, that is a dangerous worldview. The quote, being born who you are isn't a sin. Loving who you love isn't a sin. Friends, that's very, very thin ice. You see, others could take those very same words and use them to justify a heinous lifestyle. And, and you know, my fellow citizen who uses this quote might respond by saying, well, well, that's not what I meant. But my response would be, well, then who are you to judge? See, but this is the current perspective of our world. And to the degree that anyone who lovingly and carefully challenges that, they're deemed homophobic. You disagree, but you're a homophobe. End of discussion. And by the way, in rhetoric, that is called an ad hominem attack. Ad hominem, Latin, to the man. Which means, I'm just going to call you a name and shut down conversation. Friends, to assert that God never addressed homosexuality or being queer, that is bad theology. Of course Jesus did. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Jesus quoted numerous times limiting sexual relations within the safety of committed monogamous marriage between a man and a woman. Jesus just didn't address it the way we 21st century folks would like for him to. Bad theology is that which is untethered from orthodox Christian belief. But the lady from Timna in Judges 14 won't have it. She keeps pressing hard. And Christianity is not grounded in what I think or what I feel or you know, I'm inclined in my heart. Christianity is grounded in revelation that stands apart from me. God's revealed word. And every person in this room is inclined toward one version of brokenness or another. And we must crucify that inclination or it will ultimately destroy us. I wish that the article would have balanced this story with Rosaria Butterfield's story. Rosaria Butterfield was a tenured professor at a major university and a committed lesbian her neighbors, a pastor and his wife, loved her to Jesus through hospitality, evenings of conversation around the dinner table. And she is now married to a male pastor and serves in a church. Listen to her story. Listen to what she says. To be clear... I was not converted out of homosexuality. I was converted out of unbelief. I didn't swap out a lifestyle. I died to a life I loved. Conversion to Christ made me face the question squarely. Did my lesbianism reflect who I am, which is what I believed in 1999, or did my lesbianism distort who I am through the fall of Adam? 
And I learned through conversion that when something feels right and good and real and necessary but stands against God's word, this reveals the particular way Adam's sin marks my life. Our sin nature deceives us. Sin's deception isn't just out there. It's also deep in the caverns of our hearts. I've spent quite a bit of time talking about this because it is not going to go away. It won't. And very shortly, our church is going to be targeted because we are committed to Orthodox Christianity. Our lives need to be based on God's word and God's way. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. and He will make your path straight. Do you believe that? Well, Samson's messy life has taught us what a self-absorbed, selfish, secretive, compromised life looks like. Let's stop talking about Samson. Let's talk about God now. Because you see, he has a secret of his own. Did you notice that in verse 4? See, only the reader knows that God wants to pick a fight with the Philistines. God wants to defeat the very worldview that's about to swallow up and cause his own people of promise, a promise that goes all the way back to Abraham. God, God wants to pick a fight with the people who want to see his, his holy nation go extinct. So he comes to the rescue. <laughs> Only God can do this. He comes to the rescue through a self-absorbed, secretive, compromised person. There's hope for me. Samson doesn't even want to fulfill his calling, but God will not let him off the hook. It's not Samson's biceps that do the dirty work of redemption. It's the Spirit of God. And make no mistake, forgiving sin and defeating evil, that's dirty work. And, and why? Why someone like Samson? Oh, church family, because broken people are all God has to work with. And years later, the apostle Peter, who himself had denied his Lord, would preach the first Orthodox Christian message. And in that message, he would proclaim that God uses wicked people to work toward his perfect will. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. <laughs> Samson-like people put Christ to death, but God will not be stopped. He raised his son, and having ascended to heaven, he has sent his Holy Spirit, and we are a chosen race and a royal priesthood and a holy nation, and his intention is to take the fight to the enemy through us, and you have one enemy, and it is Satan, just Satan, not Satan's victims, not Satan's captives, but Satan, and God wants to show his glory to the world through us. Will we embrace this? Will we train for this? Or will we be reluctant and self-absorbed saints like Samson 
always looking over our shoulders and wishing we could be as other people? Will we be enslaved by our eyes or led by his? Will we be people who, you know, hide food secretly feasting from a carcass infested with honey? Or are we going to openly share the banquet feast of the lamb? Are we going to be assimilated and unrecognizable or separate, distinct, and holy? Our greatest Philistine threat has little to do with persecution. It is the lie that there is nothing deeper, greater, more beautiful, or more permanent than this world. We were made for more, and the more is this. Only Jesus Christ is Lord. And in that truth, despite every sin we've ever committed, that's our unity, that's our joy, and that's our only hope for this world and the world to come. Write your name in your Bible today. 99 years from now, what will your grandchild or great-grandchild read? Will they receive a Bible from a faith-filled, holy man and woman of God? And more importantly, a Bible from someone who internalized that word and lived that word. What will they learn from our lives?